Good evening, everybody. This is the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. This week, the book is Socialism Betrayed by Roger Kieran and Thomas Kenny. Tonight, we're going to be going primarily on the three ideological trends that were present throughout the history of the Soviet Union. This week, specifically, the delineations in the founding of the Soviet Union, particularly between Stalin, Trotsky, and Bukharin. Comrade, if you could start the reading. Socialism Betrayed by Roger Kieran and Thomas Kenny. Excerpts from Chapter 2, Two Trends in Soviet Politics. The collapse of the Soviet Union did not occur because of an internal economic crisis or popular uprising. It occurred because of the reforms initiated of the top by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and its General Secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev. Outsiders commonly assumed that because the Soviet Union had only one party, political thought was monolithic and political debate non-existent. This was far from true. Starting before the revolution, the Soviet Communist Party contained more than one tendency or trend. Gorbachev did not invent his policies out of whole cloth, but rather his policies reflected trends in the party that had been earlier represented in part by Nikolai Bukharin, Nikita Khrushchev, and others. Just as Gorbachev's ideas did not arise in a political vacuum, neither did they arise in a socioeconomic vacuum. That is, Gorbachev's political ideas reflected social and economic interests. Gorbachev's reforms after 1986 reflected the interests of those in the Soviet society with a stake in private enterprise and the free market. This sector consisted of entrepreneurs and corrupt party officials whose numbers had increased the previous 30 years. Before proceeding, a word of clarification is necessary. Though a continuity existed in the approach of Bukharin and Khrushchev and Gorbachev, the problems they confronted, their social basis for their support, and the policies they advocated differed. For example, in the 1920s, the largest social group with an interest in private enterprise was the peasantry which constituted a distinct class representing about 80% of the population. By the 1970s, only 20% of the population worked in agriculture, and most of these were agricultural workers on state farms or collective farms. But then the social group with a stake in private enterprise had become the petty entrepreneurs in the second economy. Such elements had thrived under the new economic policy of the early 1920s, shrank drastically with the collectivization of property under Joseph Stalin, re-emerged under Khrushchev's so-called liberalization, increased greatly in size under Brezhnev's laxness, and ballooned under Gorbachev's reforms. Another difference, the agricultural question, which was so prominent in the Karin's championing of the Kulaks and in various Khrushchev's policies, did not figure prominently in Gorbachev's program. Moreover, Gorbachev's foreign policy retreats, cultural liberalization, weakening of the party, and market initiatives went to lengths never contemplated by these precursors. In the politics of the Russian Revolution, two poles of tendencies arose because the winners of the Russian Revolution were two classes, the working class and the petty bourgeoisie, chiefly the peasantry. In 1917, the Soviet working class was small, and in the decades after 1917, 
tens of millions of peasants were the human material that would make up the new growing Soviet working class. As these two classes persisted, so did two political tendencies that more or less reflected their class interests in the 1920s. Both tendencies ostensibly favored building socialism. The working class tendency, however, favored policies that strengthened the working class by rapidly building up industry and weakened the property-owning classes by collectivizing agriculture, and policies that strengthened the role of the Communist Party, particularly in centralized economic planning. The petty bourgeois tendency favored building socialism slowly by maintaining or incorporating aspects of capitalism. For example, maintaining private property, competitive markets, and profit incentives. Though not at all political ideas fell neatly into one or the other category, nonetheless, these categories provided the poles around which the variety often pivoted. This was evident in the early debate over the new economic policy. It's important to note that the context of the NEP here arose out of the difficulties in war production under a peasant country. And so war communism was a system born out of necessity, the requirements of the young Soviet Republic as an appropriation system, primarily leaving little, if any, surplus for reinvestment in production. But in order to restore the unity between peasants and workers, as a result of that, there had to be incentives rather than coercion, which was a policy put forward by Trotsky to coerce the workers into building socialism. But the peasants were left with little. Trade between the town and country was distorted. Millions fled the cities in search of food. The class foundation of the dictatorship of the proletariat was dissolving away. This is why the NEP came about, and this is why a year later, Lenin considered it completed once the workers started moving back into the factories and the class basis of the dictatorship of the proletariat was resolving. And this is why Bukharin was an opportunist for fighting for the NEP to continue on as a way to build socialism. Is the author saying that the ideology that influenced Gorbachev to his liberalization in the 80s, if those seeds were already planted way beforehand in the early part of the 20th century with other liberals and reformists during like the 20s and 30s? The answer is yes. Very clearly yes. He mentions Bukharin, he mentions the NEP, he mentions the free market. That's all within two sentences. He lumps them all together correctly, I think. Bukharin, the new economic policy, the NEP, and the market economy. So yes, he goes back to that period. little addendum to that. When he speaks about Gorbachev not inventing his policies from cloth or whatever he said, that's specifically what he was referencing, that the ideological foundation for Gorbachev's ideas were present throughout the history of the Soviet Union. Whether they had power at certain points or not is a different matter, but those ideological trends existed within the party throughout its history. So, yes, that's the general line. Can one of the comments explain to us the precise definition of the word kulak and why that is important in understanding Bukharin's role during this period of the new economic program? After the Civil War from 1917 to 1922 and the implementation of the new economic policy from 1921 to 1928, 
the revolution was led by the industrial proletariat, allied with the petty bourgeoisie and the peasantry, but it was not led by the peasantry. So when Lenin said, peace, bread, and land, and the land was redistributed, in agriculture and in the countryside, land was redistributed on an individual basis. So land went from feudal landlords and feudal relations where you had feudal lords who had acres and acres and acres of land to where individual peasants would have their own plots of land. So the new economic policy in the countryside had a private ownership of the means of production in terms of agriculture. And so kulaks, obviously we all know about markets, we know about capitalism. So when you have that mode of production, you have the concentration of material wealth and resources into the hands of a very small amount of people. And so kulaks became the rich peasant farmers in the countryside during the new economic policy who profited from the relations of production in the new economic policy. And that's why collectivization of agriculture that happened between 1929 and 1933 had to be done because the relations of production in the countryside did not mesh with the overall goals of the Soviet economy. And the kulaks were the people who, during the collectivization of agriculture, when the means of production of agriculture were being socialized in the countryside, these were the good Samaritans who burnt their crops, who slaughtered their livestock, who hoarded grain while their neighbors were starving, and created horrific conditions in the countryside due to their profit motive and their relations to production. The reading speaks about different political trends within the party and how down the line a certain one led to revisionism in the Soviet Union. So I guess my question is, when do different views within the party or different tendencies become more than trends and start to become factionalism? Or if not factionalism, when does it become a problem? I'm hesitant to call it factionalism in that these were their trends and these trends aren't factionalism. I think the book is saying very much that these were ideas in different class interests. They're not someone trying to be an opportunist or, or break apart the party. It's just class interests happening with class interests. And I think we should be aware of what the class interests are rather than haphazardly or foolhardily ignoring anything that goes in. If we try to establish socialism in ourselves, we have to understand all of the different class interests that are coming in because we aren't starting with a blank slate. We don't start with everyone believing socialism can be built the exact same way. And so this is the warning that it gives us. Rather than it being factionalism, it's just a bunch of trends that are coming in, and we have to be aware of that. Add to that. During the early years of the Bolshevik Party, even before they came into power, they had at their congresses a majority report, people may not know this, and a minority report. The majority report was the party policy, and the minority report was just read so everybody knew what the minority thought, but it was not accepted. That was later dropped in 1928, about that period, it was dropped, and all we got was the majority report, which was from the democratic centralism, the report of the position of the party. There were never tendencies that formed into, as Comrade said before me, into factions. That never happened. So that's unclear. The Trotskyites decided to take that and continue it. That's why when they broke away in 1928, Leon Trotsky, in their organization, 
in this country called the Socialist Workers' Party and the rest of their people throughout the world that sided with Trotsky, they had tendencies, political fractions within their party. So they already strayed from what Lenin was talking about. But from 1928 on, there were no more reports of a minority because it really didn't matter since the party didn't follow the minority anyway. In late 1920 and early 1921, with the country freed of foreign invaders, Lenin and other leaders of the revolution turned their attention from war to peace. They needed to replace the policies of war communism, particularly the forceful appropriation of surplus grain that had alienated many peasants. They had to grapple with acute shortages of fuel, food, and transportation to revive industry and food production and ensure the unity between workers and peasants. In March 1921, at the 10th Congress of the Bolshevik Party, Lenin proposed what became known as the New Economic Policy, NEP. It was a strategic retreat, a chance to regroup and lay the foundations for a future march towards socialism. Under the NEP, a tax in kind replaced the appropriation of peasant grain. Peasants could engage in free trade to sell their surplus, and various other kinds of capitalist enterprises could exist. The idea was that the NEP would encourage the peasants to produce more, and the state could use taxes on peasant produce to revive the state-owned industry. Debate soon arose. The left called the NEP a capitulation to capitalism that would doom the Soviet project. On the other end of the spectrum, Leon Trotsky, Grigory Zinoviev, Nikolai Bukharin, and others thought the NEP was too tame and advocated even more far-reaching concessions to capitalism. Lenin agreed that the NEP represented a danger. It means unrestricted trade, he said, and that means turning back towards capitalism. Still, he thought the party could handle the danger by limiting the retreat and keeping it temporary. Lenin prevailed. By the time of Lenin's death in 1924, the revolution had seized state power and consolidated its hold, had defeated invading imperialist armies and the domestic counter-revolution, had nationalized key industries, had distributed land to the peasants, and had revitalized industry and food production. Originally, all leading communists thought that completing the socialist revolution in a backward peasant country like Russia would be impossible without revolutions in the West. With the defeat of an uprising of the German workers in 1923, however, it became clear that no European revolution was on the horizon. With no European revolution to count on, what was to be done? Three solutions presented themselves. Leon Trotsky's, Nikolai Bukharin's, and Joseph Stalin's. Leon Trotsky advocated an attempt to build socialism at home while continuing to press for socialist revolution abroad. Domestically, he urged the development of industry, the collectivization and mechanization of agriculture, and the development of economic planning. Above all, however, and with increasing stridency, Trotsky stressed the need for international revolution as the only hope for Russia to escape from what he called bureaucratic degeneration and the loss of revolutionary fervor. Trotsky and the left opposition were decisively defeated at the 14th Party Congress in 1925, which adopted a course of rapid industrialization and self-sufficiency.
it talks about how Lenin acknowledged that the NEP was unrestricted trade and turned back around towards capitalism. In his analysis, he thought that the party could handle it. So what kind of considerations go into this? Because how would we know if we could handle something like that? Or how do you know if it's a good idea or not? Lenin was the first one in the planet to lead a workers and peasants revolution. Everything that happened after that was experimental. We were trying it then to see if it worked. And so Lenin did that. When they did that, they found out that there was a side effect. Like when you take a vaccine, we don't always know what's going to happen until we experiment and we find out there are side effects. The side effect they found out is it created a middle class, which is very dangerous. Remember what Marx and remember what Lenin said about the middle class. Their aim is to build capitalism. The aim is not to build socialism. That's the aim of the middle class. Always was, always will be. That's just the nature of the beast. It was an experimental situation, and we learned from it. The question is, are we going to learn from that down the road? Or do we have to experiment again and learn again? That's the question I think has to be raised. Remember, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Stalin, Trotsky and Lenin. They were all alive. At that treaty, if you remember, it was one of the first times that Trotsky came in conflict with Lenin. He said, do not sign the treaty. What did Lenin do? He signed it. In left-wing communism and infantile disorder, Lenin brings in the difference between the ultra-left and communists, is that we understand there are times when we have to compromise. We even have a pamphlet that Lenin wrote, Two Steps Forward and One Step Back, I believe that's the name of it, in which he goes along with the idea of compromise, why we need compromise. Stalin said we needed compromise. We're weak. It showed that the West were going to send 14 countries to invade us. They did in Archangel and in Mamansk a few years before then. Therefore, we have to hold on to what we got. We would lose everything if we put all our eggs in the basket of waiting for Lefty, as a famous play in the 30s, came to help them. I want to mention that the example of trade union, when they go on strike, their job is to try to get as much for the workers as possible. If they can get some things and lose other concessions, they do it. It's not what we want, but at least we're getting something. I know that at various points when Trotsky was still a part of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, he would vacillate on his various positions. At one point, he was pushing for collectivization really hard. At another point, he was pushing for the NEP with Bukharin and whatnot. So I was just wondering if more knowledgeable comrade could enlighten us about that. His whole history has been one of wavering between one side and the other. His whole history. When he was in the Martov wing of the Russian Social Democratic Party, that was the Menshevik wing of the party, Martov's wing. And their position was very adamantly against revolution, and the Bolshevik was the opposite for the revolution. So he vacillated a few months 
before the revolution in 1917, he changed. So he constantly goes from the left to the right, like a pendulum on a grandfather clock. He goes swings completely to one and the other. He has a problem with that. Nikolai Bukharin represented a petty bourgeois, or right-wing, solution to socialism's way forward. Barrington Moore pointed out that unlike Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, Bukharin never held a high administrative post with major organizational responsibilities as editor of Pravda and an official of the Comintern. He manipulated symbols rather than men. Moreover, as a theoretician, he moved from the extreme left to the extreme right of the communist political spectrum. By the 1920s, he was firmly on the right. He believed that Russia could not skip the stage of capitalism or even pass through it quickly. As Moore said, Bukharin's positions strongly resembled the gradualist views of Western social democracy. He softened the idea of class struggle to the idea of a peaceful contest between competing interest groups and between state industry and private industry, between cooperative farms and private farms, in which the former would gradually show their superiority, whereas Lenin, the originator of the new economic policy, had frankly viewed it as a retreat. The Koran viewed the NEP as the road to socialism. He would have continued the new economic policy and allowed or even encouraged private enterprise, particularly among the Kulaks. Bukharin opposed rapid industrialization, the collectivization of agriculture, and any coercion of the peasants. Instead, he said the peasants should be given what they want, and he advanced a slogan for the peasants, enrich yourselves. In a kind of pale imitation of Trotsky's vain hope in socialist revolutions abroad, Bukharin sought to obtain support for the Soviet Union from non-communist groups abroad, hopes that were dashed by the failure in 1926 to 1927 to win the support of British trade unionists, German social democrats, and Chinese nationalists. Bukharin and the right opposition were rebuffed by the 15th Party Congress in 1927 that adopted a policy of promoting the collectivization of agriculture. Sixty years later, Gorbachev read a biography of Bukharin by historian Stephen F. Cohen. According to Gorbachev's close advisor, Anatoly Chernyev, it was then that Gorbachev decided to rehabilitate Bukharin and the reevaluation of Bukharin opened the gate to reconsidering our whole ideology. In the course of debates with Trotsky and Bukharin, Stalin developed his own solution to socialism's way forward. It had four main components. First was the idea that socialism would be built in one country, a reiteration of Lenin's 1915 idea that the victory of socialism was possible even in one single capitalist country. In the 1920s, Stalin translated this idea into a program. Stalin argued that the Soviet Union could advance towards socialism without a revolution in the West, without help from non-communist allies abroad, 
and without passing through developed capitalism, providing that the country industrialized rapidly. This was the second component. Industrialization required financing. Since self-financing of industry would be slow, and financing by foreign investment was possible, the growth of industry would have to be financed by increasing agricultural yields. Hence, rapid industrialization required the development of large-scale collective farms utilizing mechanized production. This was the third component, the coordination of industrial growth, agricultural production demanded centralized planning, the fourth component. British historian E.H. Carr called this formulation of the problem and its solution proof of Stalin's political genius. With these ideas, Stalin defeated first Trotsky and then Bukharin. Moreover, as Carr noted, he saved the revolution more than 10 years after Lenin's revolution. Stalin made a second revolution without which Lenin's revolution would have run out into the sand. In this sense, Stalin continued and fulfilled Leninism. Underneath the policy differences between Stalin and Bukharin resided more fundamental differences. Bukharin thought that class struggle was only needed until the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Though Stalin did not, as many have asserted, maintain that the class struggle in general intensified as socialism developed, he did argue that class struggle would intensify specifically as the country moved from the NEP toward collectivization. Bukharin viewed the NEP concessions to the peasants, the market, and capitalism as a long-term policy. Stalin viewed them as a temporary expedient that the revolution had to jettison when able. During the grain crisis of 1927-28, Bukharin wanted to rely on the free market and to encourage peasants to grow more grain by offering them more consumer goods. Even with the threat of impending war, Bukharin opposed speeding up industrialization if it meant adversely affecting the peasants. For Stalin, impending war provided an additional reason for speeding industrialization, even if it meant exacting surplus from the peasants to finance it, and he dismissed Bukharin as one of the peasant philosophers. During the NEP, Stalin faced a different problem than had Lenin before 1919. The NEP encouraged the development of petty capitalists, or what Stalin called the middle strata, consisting of the peasantry and petty toiling population of the towns. These middle strata constituted nine-tenths of the population of the oppressed nationalities, and they were particularly susceptible to nationalist appeals. The development of nationalism in these strata constituted a real threat to the consolidation of the proletarian dictatorship, whose basis was mainly and primarily of the central, the industrial regions. Consequently, Stalin urged a struggle against the nationalist tendencies, which are developing and becoming accentuated in connection with the new economic policy. Stalin's main opposition on this point came from Bukharin, who in 1919 had made an about-face from opposing self-determination to embracing it. By 1923, Bukharin not only supported the NEP and the petty capitalists created by it, but also advocated a hands-off approach toward this class's growing nationalism. Stalin noted that Bukharin had gone from one extreme to the other, from denying the right of self-determination to supporting it one-sidedly. 
What remained the same, however, was Bukharin's failure to accord nationalism's sufficient importance, his failure to appreciate either its potential support of or its potential danger to the revolution, and his reluctance to struggle with nationalists who opposed socialist development. With Stalin's death in 1953, the political struggle over the direction of socialism continued. Highly impulsive and sometimes inconsistent, Khrushchev represented an approach to building socialism that often resembled Bukharin and Andrei Zednov, and foreshadowed Gorbachev. This approach cut across the entire spectrum of issues from ideology to agriculture, foreign affairs, economics, culture, and the operation of the party. Though it is important to appreciate the continuity of certain ideas in the history of the CPSU, obviously the value of any particular policy depended upon its success in defending or advancing socialism at a particular time and under particular circumstances. Most would agree, for example, that Khrushchev's advancement of the idea of peaceful coexistence and his reduction of Soviet military ground forces represented appropriate and successful policies, whatever their lineage. Others of his ideas were more dubious. Both before Khrushchev consolidated his hold on the party in 1957, Vyacheslav Molotov and others opposed the main thrust of his policies, and in 1964, after forcing Khrushchev into retirement, the party reversed many of his initiatives. Khrushchev's ideas, however, did not disappear entirely and would flower again under Gorbachev. The best way to understand the differences between the thrust of Khrushchev's policies and those of his critics, like Molotov, as well as Gorbachev's policies and his critics, like Yeager Ligachev, was to see them as polarities, even though in practice the differences sometimes amounted to matters of emphasis. For example, Khrushchev believed in a quick and easy path to communism, while his critics projected a more protracted and difficult road. Khrushchev looked for an easing of the contest with the U.S. and its allies abroad and political relaxation and consumer communism at home. His critics saw a continuation of class struggle abroad and the need for vigilance and discipline at home. Khrushchev saw more in Stalin to condemn than to praise, Molotov and others more to praise than condemn. Khrushchev favored incorporating a range of capitalist or Western ideas into socialism, including market mechanisms, decentralization, some private production, the heavy reliance on fertilizer and the cultivation of corn, and increased investment in consumer goods. Molotov favored improved centralized planning and socialized ownership and continuing the priority of industrial development. Khrushchev favored broadening the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat and the proletarian vanguard role of the Communist Party to put other sectors of the population on an equal footing with workers. His critics did not. In 1953, Khrushchev initiated a set of policies that proved to be problematic both ideologically and practically. Khrushchev encouraged the country to look to the West not only as a source of new methods of production, but as a standard of comparison for Soviet achievements. He also shifted resources from industry to agriculture to encourage agricultural production. Khrushchev reverted to NEP-type measures. He reduced taxes on individual plots, eliminated taxes on individual livestock, and encouraged people in villages and towns to keep more privately owned cows, pigs, and chickens and to cultivate private gardens. Khrushchev also came up with a brainstorm for boosting agricultural production overnight. In January 1954, 
he proposed a nationwide campaign to cultivate millions of hectares of so-called virgin lands, mainly in Siberia and Kazakhstan. That year, 300,000 volunteers joined the virgin lands campaign and plowed 13 million hectares of new land. The following year's efforts added another 14 million hectares of cultivated land. The softening of the class struggle, especially when Khrushchev came on, instead of making it the dictatorship of the workers and peasants, it was a dictatorship of the whole Soviet people. And then further on, Gorbachev would not mention class struggle, but would mention something called universal human values. There's a problem in our movement, always has been. Somebody is good at one point on the calendar, and then in the future, they're no good. And therefore, we have an attitude, which is not dialectical, that people are good or bad. That is incorrect for a Bolshevik or a communist to think that. For example, the famous quote and discussion that Lenin gave to Karl Kautsky, the German Social Democratic Party. He said, I remember well when you, Karl, were a Marxist revolutionary. And that's a quote. And that was at a different period of time. Later on, Kalkowski became a supporter of World War I, German imperialism. Another one, Bukharin, wrote a book in the early 20s that you should get a hold of, The ABC of Communism which was a very sound, analytic discussion of what communism was and where we were going. So again, this is the same Bukharin that later on was working with the Germans and the Japanese many, many years later. So they do change. People go from the left to the right. And that's why I do not take an attitude that this is all good or bad. The same Browder who built the party in the 30s, was the same Browder who dissolved the party. So we have to look at them in different periods in history. The talk about Trotsky in this lesson has brought back memory. Grover first book, Trotsky Amalgams. It's a great book, but unless you have the patience to slog through like 500 pages, it's a bit much, but it absolutely is a great resource on breaking down every single lie that Trotsky has ever told defending the Moscow trials, and examining the Trotsky archives, which Grover found out had been expunged and edited to create a narrative about Trotsky, and also goes into detail all of Trotsky's coordinations and collaborations with the fascists before and during World War II. It absolutely is a great book. It is a bit of a slog. I absolutely would recommend this. I recommend William Z. Foster's Russia in 1924, while he was there experiencing and seeing the effects of the NEP. And he goes into specifics outlining the historical context of the NEP arising out of the declassing of the proletariat, which fully refutes all those who put forward market socialism. When it said, Arn viewed the NEP concessions to the peasants, the market and capitalism, as a long-term policy. Stalin viewed them as a temporary expedient that the revolution had to jettison when able to. Especially today, we have the tendency to want easy answers, and I'm speaking specifically in regards to China, 
people want a very cut-and-dry, black-and-white, easy-to-sleep-with understanding of contemporary China. That quote I just read, what is China more aligned with right now? Stalin viewing the NEP as a temporary expedient that the revolution had to jettison when able? Or is it closer to viewing the NEP concessions to the peasants' capitalism and the markets as a long-term policy? While supporting People's China, while opposing the counter-revolution attempt at Tiananmen Square, still having a skeptical eye when we see history repeat itself in ways that led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. I think people should take initiative to take off some rose-colored glasses that we may have on and see the real parallels that exist between Bukharan and contemporary socialist countries. Reading recommendation, National Colonial Question by Joe Stalin, because nationalism is a sword that cuts two ways. What I mean by that is that it can break either for the bourgeoisie or it can break for the working class. So when you do an analysis of the national question, you have to look at the class first. If you read that book, it gives you a very detailed explanation of that process. A question regarding some leaders of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union that weren't really mentioned. Malenkov, Chernenko, Andropov, their relation to this rot of right-wing revisionism, right opportunism, because Andropov, for example, the guy who brought Gorbachev into the party, he was like his best friend. I am not one of those who think Andropov is a positive element. I'm probably in the minority in communist leaders. I think he was dangerous. I think he wanted to do what Gorbachev did, but not as fast. And he did not want it to end the way Gorbachev did. Gorbachev was not just a perestroika, which means in Russian, rectifying the economy. And Dropov was, on the other hand, not supportive of Glasnost, which meant opening the doors to those people who were anti-Soviet. Anti-Soviet not only in the nationality groups in Latvia and other countries, but also in the history of the Soviet Union. And Dropov was not that. But he felt that we can do what we did, like they're doing in China now, but it would be successful. But on the whole, the idea of accepting corrections in the economic field. I supported Castro when he wrote in Socialism or Death. You do not fix the problems of socialism with capitalist tools. That's what Fidel said. And therefore, to use the stock market, like China has done, like Vietnam has done, it's dangerous. And that's my reading of Andropov, that he was not one of the best. There are a lot of people who, who praise him, but I don't. About Bukharin, when the new economic policy happened, seven years, you had the buildup of the kulaks and of the middle class, and that had to be dealt with. From 1929 to 1933, the kulaks had to be eliminated as a class. So, rhetorical question, when you're building socialism, we're using capitalist methods. What is going to happen when you have a new economic policy for 70 years instead of seven years? 
how big is the middle class going to get? How are you going to have to deal with that middle class? These are questions that I think people who take a very easy analysis of China fail to factor into their analysis. I think it should be at the forefront of our analysis about when this supposed updated new economic policy comes to a close, how in the same way that the Soviet Union's had to deal with the kulaks, how various countries that are using capitalist methods to build socialism right now, how that middle strata is going to be dealt with. I think that's a question that people should spend time analyzing. So we've been talking about revisionism and whatnot, how it happened in the Soviet Union, but I was wondering, Comrade Angelo, if you could draw a parallel for us with the situation in China. Because, you know, Mao, he was a good comrade at one point. We even have, on contradiction, a new outlook, some of his earlier works. But getting towards the Korean War, post-Korea, and the Cultural Revolution, and shaking hands with Nixon, how does that happen? And then how does someone like Deng Xiaoping become such a renowned figure within the party? and totally changed the course of it, while still maintaining its existence, differentiating from Gorbachev there. We need to have a whole discussion on what is going on in China. We're not going to do it now with primary sources and everything else. Let me go into this one thing. Remember, dialectically, communist leaders go through periods. You cannot paint them in one color or the other depending on a period of society and the calendar where they are. But remember one thing. We are here in this class tonight because we see very clearly that fundamentally, what is the essence of Marxism? It's very simple. We are opposed to capitalism. Why? Because it exploits the labor power of another human being by using it to enrich ourselves. That's what the main thing of our economy is, is Marxist. Dealing with labor power, dealing with exploitation. If that happens in any society that claims they're socialist, then you have to say, this is ridiculous. They're not socialist. I want to end it with that, that the essence of capitalism has to be rejected. Any communist who thinks that they can look at themselves in the face and lie to themselves, let alone other people, that living off the exploitation of another human being is good. And yet, isn't that the position of Bukharin in the 1920s? I'll quote you for tonight's work. Enrich yourself. What's that about? That's a communist? Enrich yourself? All right, and I'll read that, what happened in Tao Xiaoping when he came in. To be rich is glorious. What the hell is that about? Today, a main ideology, in my opinion, that is facing the communist movement is Bukharin. They buried Marx, they buried Lenin, they buried Stalin, and Khrushchev is not talked about, Gorbachev is gone, but the ghost of Bukharin, is living in Vietnam right now, is living in China, is living in Laos. And there are elements of that in Cuba right now to build reforms to take away the meaning of socialism. 
remember what our definition is. A centralized, planned economy with no unemployment and the means of production owned completely, 100%, by the workers of peasant state. And that's it. Also, there was no collapse in the Soviet Union, comrades. Let's not say what the bourgeoisie says. What happened in the Soviet Union was the success of the counter-revolution that's been around since 1917 and 1918. They were around remnants, and they waited around, and they waited, and their offspring waited, and they succeeded in 1991. That's what that was, a counter-revolution that succeeded. I want to end it with that. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I hope people learned something that they didn't know before. I hope people were encouraged to do some reading on their own. A lot of books were mentioned tonight. Start doing stuff on your own and to see if you can explain to yourself. Because Marxism-Leninism is our science. The bourgeoisie does not have that science. And it's available to us. It's a key to understand what's going on in the world. And with that, I want to thank everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Join us on Discord and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.